read that section of scripture. Good stuff. Okay, if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 13, and otherwise you can read it on the screen behind. Thanks. Page 14 of this Bible that I'm reading from, I think there are some others floating around too. So Genesis 13, starting at verse 5. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. And now we skip to 14.14. When Abram heard that his relative, that is Lot, had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. 
I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aina, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. In 1949, work started on the Snowy Scheme, Snowy Hydroelectric Scheme. But 25 years later, we had more than just a bunch of new dams and tunnels. Australia had found a practical way to set up some of its most poorest workers, including many migrants who'd arrived in the years following World War II. Uh, I know, I benefited from that because both my grandfathers worked on the Snowy Scheme. The cost of construction was $820 million, which is a huge amount of money even in today's standards. Can you imagine those poor migrant refugee workers taking around the cap, trying to round up $820 million? Can you imagine what it would have been like if the poorest people were tasked with starting the work and raising the funds to do just that? They needed the direction of a big funding body. They needed that big funding body to have a vision and to provide the funds. In fact, you can't really start any large-scale project without a reliable backer, whether it's a Navy ship a hospital or even a new home, you need a backer so you can step out in faith and start work on a long-term pursuit. It's no different today, and it doesn't just have to be a financial project. A couple of weeks ago, I pointed out how important it was uh, to have the end in mind. But we also know that it's very hard for us to follow that new course of life unless we know we'll have support along the way, unless we know we'll have backing. You might be stuck in a rut. You might be afraid to make change. In order to step out in faith, you need a guarantee that it's a change for the better. Today's story turns on this very issue. In the account of Abram, there's a long-term, large-scale project in mind, and the passage repeatedly asks the question, who's the backer? Or to use a more common phrase, who's got your back? Just tell them I'm busy, Nancy. Today we'll see that God has got Abram's back, and God has your back too. We enter Genesis with much water under the bridge. Here in church, we're getting back into Genesis. Did you notice? We've left James and now focusing on Genesis 13 to 25, which is the account of the life of Abram, or Abraham as he becomes to, comes to be known later. Our last look at Genesis ended with chapter 12, which was a key point in the book as God made promises to give Abram three things, can anyone remember? To give him land, to give him people, and to give him a blessing. But there was also a command just one chapter ago, back in chapter 12, verse 1. Abram must leave his country, leave his community, and leave his father's relatives and step out in trust 
that God has his back. And so when we come to today's passage, chapter 13, we find that Abram hasn't fully complied with God's command yet. Abram and his wife Sarai have left the place where they were staying. They've given up everything they had, with one exception. Who else is with him? Chapter 13, verse 5. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot is Abraham's, Abram's nephew, the orphaned son of Abram's brother, Haran. But God has called Abraham, Abram, let's get it right, God has called Abram to leave his extended family. And Abram has a choice here. Stick with Lot or trust God completely? From verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarrelling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Isn't the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. The fact there's quarrelling certainly makes the decision easier for Abram. But knowing this background info helps us realise that Abram is faced with a difficult choice. Lot has no father to go to. Haran is dead. It's a long way back to his family. He's had great success as he partnered with Abram, Abram who was given responsibility for looking after Lot when Haran died. It's natural that Abram would be concerned for Lot's future. I would be too. If my sister died, I would be wanting to make sure my nephew was well supported. But Lot is supported. Did you see? He now has flocks and herds and people of his own. Abram has obeyed 99%. He's left that territory and that family. (gasps) Couldn't God just handle one deviation from the plan? And include Lot, let Abram keep Lot and they could stick together. Well, that's not what God is asking for. God wants Abram's total obedience, Abram's total trust. There's signs of difficulty afoot. They were quarrelling already. And the whole arrangement seems to be a bit tenuous. So Abram must make the decision to separate. Not so Abram can achieve prosperity but so that he can fully commit that last bit to God. It's understandable then that Abram gives Lot some, se- some choice about the separation. Did you see? Even to the point that Abram is ready to give up the better land if that's the one that Lot wants. But Abram trusts that God is in control. God has directed Abram to separate But he's also promised to back Abram by providing land, descendants and blessing. I wonder how things will work out for these two. Let's see how it goes. The next part of our passage describes the two diverging paths of nephew and uncle. But it's not merely a geographical divergence. It shows a contrast in what they put their trust in. Let's look from verse 10. 
Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out to the east. The two men parted company, Abram living in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Lot's made his choice. And in these four verses, we get some small hints about Lot's reasons and the coming consequences. But in summary, Lot trusts his eyes. Did you notice the echo of Genesis 3 in what we just read? Lot made a choice based on little more than appearance, that the land looked desirable, like the garden of the Lord. Genesis readers will remember another garden earlier in the story, where Eve took for herself some of the fruit that was pleasing to the eye and desirable. Lot, it seems, has chosen based on what is desirable to the eye rather than consulting with the Lord. And he's chosen, therefore, to pitch his tents near a town called Sodom, a town practically synonymous with sin, yet in the middle of a beautiful part of the world. The narrator points out the irony that this beautiful part of the world is headed for destruction. Abram, on the other hand, has been left with what, by implication anyway, is the less attractive countryside. I guess Abram could have felt a bit down by that. He's just separated from his last relative, just given it all up to God. Even though he has no child yet to inherit his wealth, and now he's settled for something that is considerably less attractive than the fertile Jordan Valley, but he's not trusting his eyes. He's not following what's desirable on earth, he's following God. He's trusting that God has his back. From verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look to the north and south and east and west. All the land you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land. If Abram is at all unsure or at all down about his decision, God tells him to lift his gaze physically lift his gaze, don't look down, and see that it's all for you. But metaphorically to lift his gaze and see that God is his backer. It's at this time that God chooses to repeat his promises to Abram, that God is backing the life of the one who chooses to trust in him. God reassures Abram. But the reassurance, it seems, comes only after Abram chooses to go all in. Abram separates from Lot 
And that's when he hears God's voice again. And it's exactly this sort of obedience, this sort of faith that Abram is commended for in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the honour roll of the faithful, we get this. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder and backer is God. The hero of this story in Genesis is not Abram. Abram's commitment wasn't perfect. He took some convincing to take that last step. It's not the last time Abram will fail. But the hero of this story is God, who not only calls Abram, but backs him. It's understandable that sometimes following God would look like the less attractive option. But Abram is called here to trust God, to follow, to lift his gaze to God's sovereign plan, to trust that God's way is the best way, to trust that God has got his back. And as we move into Genesis 14, there's a lot of political detail, but for today, a summary will suffice. There's trouble afoot. In the time that Lot was settling in the valley of the Jordan, it was actually a bit of a political powder keg. Four political kings on the one hand, four powerful kings on the one hand, have been controlling the area, oppressing five minor kings, including the king of Sodom. And that's where Lot's gone. He's walked into a situation where there's oppression happening, four kings over five. But when the five oppressed kings start to resist, the four powerful kings start putting their foot down. It doesn't look good for Lot's region and the resulting war is predictably one-sided. Let's pick it up from verse 11. Of chapter 14. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Lot's choice just a few verses ago was based on what looked good. He didn't consult with the Lord. His choice hasn't turned out to be that great. But Abram, who has carefully and painstakingly listened to God and trusted in him and obeyed, he appears to bring the winning touch in the verses that we're going to read. From verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Verse 16, Abram recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions. I want to point out again that throughout this story, Lot's choices, Lot's path seems to be associated with self-interest. What looked good at the time, with aesthetic appeal and yet is connected with Lot's disaster. 
Lot follows what looks good and finds himself in need of rescue. Abram chooses to be faithful to God, chooses to obey and finds reassurance and support and ultimately finds victory. God has his back. This sort of choice persists today, doesn't it? Every subsequent generation is reading Genesis and being faced with similar situations. Their own decisions about whether to trust and follow God or whether to go with what looks more attractive. We're faced with this decision when we consider what to invest in, when we consider who to spend time with, when we consider what our priorities are in life. I wonder which person you relate to. Are you like Abram, who trusts God fully, or are you like Lot, who chose to follow what looked good and now his life is in a mess? But the real hero of this story is God, the backer. God provides the victory for Abram and even for Lot. Did you notice? Even for Lot, despite his foolishness, God delivers both uncle and nephew and he can deliver you too if you put your trust in him, even if you have made foolish decisions. Now is the time to turn back to him. You don't even have to know the intricate detail of where your life will lead and make a comparison over which looks better. You simply need to trust in God, obey his direction to follow and trust that God has got your back. And to confirm God's faithfulness, verse 18 gives us an amazing Easter egg. Easter egg? not in the text. Easter egg. I wonder if you know about the phenomenon of Easter eggs in movies. Younger people, probably. Older people, maybe not so much. Uh, I'm not talking about chocolate covered in foil. Although I could. Easter eggs is the term given when one movie obliquely, subtly, refers to another movie in what you're watching. In the Pixar movie, Monsters, Inc., the little girl, Boo, shows some of her toys to the monster, Sully. One of the toys is a Nemo clownfish. Can you see it? Which made no sense until people saw the next movie to be launched from Pixar, Finding Nemo. There was a hint about the next movie to come in what we see in this scene, an Easter egg. Why am I talking about Easter eggs? Because there's an Easter egg appearance here in Genesis 14 that we mustn't miss as Abram is put to the test again. Out of nowhere comes a man by the name of Melchizedek. He's not one of the nine kings that were named earlier in chapter 14, nor is he named anywhere else in Genesis We don't know who his father was. We we don't get any information. He just lobs. From verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, 
creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. King of righteousness. That's what the name means. Melchizedek also happens to be king of Salem, the text tells us, which Salem means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Interesting guy. So he's a king, but the text tells us he's also a priest. Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, but he's clearly separate from Israel's temple system when Israel chooses a set of, well, sets up a priestly system. Melchizedek seems to be part of that. They go through Levi, right? That's a little later. Well before that, we see that Melchizedek is a priest and a king, separate from Israel's temple system. Where else do we find a man who fits this description? Who's both a king and a priest arriving mysteriously. And we're not really sure who his father is. We would struggle to understand except the New Testament provides this answer. No fewer than eight New Testament books give the answer. But the book of Hebrews is clearest. Melchizedek is like an Easter egg pointing to Jesus. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 5. It's also on the front of your bulletin. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There's so many references like this. Jesus is God's chosen king. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is king of righteousness But even more so, because while Melchizedek just had a name meaning king of righteousness, Jesus' life was righteous, was perfect, was free of sin. And like Melchizedek, Jesus is king of peace. But even more so, because while Melchizedek just had the name of his kingdom was peace, Jesus actually makes peace between us and God. All of us have made poor decisions and those poor decisions have made us enemies of God and we are suffering. But Jesus is our peace. Melchizedek came offering bread and wine. Sound familiar? Jesus came offering his body and blood. His whole life for you and for me. While we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were deserving of punishment, Jesus gave his whole life in place of the punishment that we deserve. Hebrews 7.27 puts it best. Unlike the other high priests, he, Jesus, doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins, that's our sins, once for all when he offered himself. On the cross, 
That is a sacrifice that no ordinary priest is qualified to make. Jesus is not just a king. Jesus is not just a priest. Jesus is also the sacrifice that is offered to make peace between us and God. The arrival of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 highlights again that God has Abram's back. But friends, God shows he has our back too when he sent Jesus. God's promise to Abram of life and blessing is just a foretaste of God's promise to us of life in Jesus. Jesus could have chosen an easier life, but he chose the obedient path, even to death on a cross. He died the death we deserved. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand, job now complete, guaranteeing salvation for those who trust in him. And just like Abram showed his trust in submitting to Melchizedek, we show our trust in God by submitting to Jesus, by kneeling before him, by accepting him as our priest, as our king, as our saviour. Now is the time for you to submit to Jesus and to trust in God who planned out this whole story from beginning to end, from Melchizedek to Jesus to Jesus' return. So don't trust in mere appearances and be led into captivity by Lot. Uh, like Lot, you will find yourself needing rescue. Trust in God and fully submit to his plans for you because it's only in God that you will find true victory, true freedom. So how then shall we live if we're living by faith and not trusting in mere appearances? The passage here has clear implications and I see two applications for our church. The first is how will we honour God who is our backer? In this passage, Abram gave God a tenth of everything through Melchizedek, the high priest. Giving a tenth uh, became common practice among Christians too. And while I'm not going to labour the details about giving, there is an implication here about our motive for giving to God. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Tenths in the Bible are a sign of total submission. They're a sign that all is provided by God and in giving, I'm acknowledging that it all comes from God and all goes to God anyway. But tenths are also a teaching tool. A teaching tool. How am I learning anything by giving money or giving time or giving stuff? Deuteronomy chapter 14 says this, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all you produce each year so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. There is a teaching effect in giving to God. When Abram gives a tenth to this high priest of the Most High God, he is trusting in God, he's acknowledging that God has his back, and he is also learning to depend on God by giving away 
the things that might otherwise have made him comfortable. I guess we could see Abram's gift as an example of his lucky windfall. Maybe we should only give a tenth or give away what we receive unexpectedly. I mean, didn't Abram just give Melchizedek a tenth after the war where he got a whole heap of stuff? But no, that's not what Abraham did. When he met Melchizedek, Abram didn't just give a tenth of the plunder. Abram gave a tenth of everything. He didn't just declare that the plunder, the victory in the battle, was because of God. He declared that everything he owned came from God, his backer. And so must we declare that everything comes from God's good grace. Uh, whether it's a tenth or more or less, uh, I'm, I'm not making that claim or I'm not putting a number on it. What I'm saying is whatever it is, it is declaring that God is your backer and it is learning to trust in him rather than the security you get from your stuff. God doesn't need your possessions. What he's asking for is a sign of your commitment that you trust that God is your backer. And as I mentioned before, this commitment is not just about money. Don't get me wrong. This is about time, about talents, about relationships, about your energy. Just like Abram, we commit to God not just in wealth, but in the decisions that we make about who we will trust, using our time and talents for God's service. And so when we look at the remaining verses, we're confronted by a question. Abram gives to the evil king of Sodom as well. Abram gave to God through Melchizedek as a sign that he trusted in God, but now he's giving to Sodom as well. In verse 21, the king says, give me the people and you keep the goods. And in verse 22, what does Abram do? He gives the king the whole lot. With Melchizedek, Abram gave a tenth to show his trust in God. But with the king of Sodom, Abram gave even more? What's with that? Well, Abram, it seems, is cutting ties with the evil king. He's cutting all ties with this sinful nation. See verse 23. He gives so you, the king, will not be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abram wants to separate completely, so Sodom has no claim on his future, has no claim on a relationship with him. He can't ever say, oh, you're holding some of my possessions. We need, we're, we're still in partnership. He is ruling a line under that relationship. He is giving Sodom everything. The deal is done. The price is paid. That's a good model for us today. When we choose God and we commit fully, no amount of income is worth it if we're partners with evil still. That's why we don't invest in unethical or dodgy companies. 
even if there's financial benefit. It's why we avoid addiction in any form. We just give it up even though it costs us. Whether it's a harmful drug or a lifestyle, it doesn't matter because just like Abram, we cut ties with the things that would lead us away from God, with the things that would bind us to evil. We choose the life that God says is best because only God has our back. I told you my grandparents were uh, working on the snowy scheme. They made a choice to separate from their home countries in search of something better. And in doing so, they endured much hard labour. But for them, it was better than staying in their home country. But God's invested in something much greater than the snowy scheme, big as it was. God's called Abram to leave everything and trust in him He calls you too to leave everything behind and trust only in him into nothing less than total security, into a kingdom that cannot be shaken with Jesus Christ as the unshakable foundation. The choice is yours. Will you follow God by trusting in Jesus as your foundation? And will you demonstrate that trust in every part of your life? It's worth it, though it might look less attractive. We know God has got our back. Let's pray. Lord, how amazing that Lot made a foolish decision and found himself in captivity. We have made foolish decisions And we find ourselves in captivity to sin. But you are gracious and rescues us though we could do nothing. You, Lord, rescue us though we could do nothing. And so, separated from evil, through the gracious offering of Jesus' body and blood, help us now to truly commit to you, to make all of our decisions based on what you would have, And not to just give part, but to give all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.